Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series in the book of Genesis called Confident Faith with a message entitled Submitting to Grace. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The grace of God is an amazing thing. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, that passage in Hebrews is an urgent appeal to Christians to watch out for one another. Do you see anyone who might be falling from grace? Well, how do we do that? How do we fall out of the grace of God? Well, God's grace is his willingness to forgive our sins, his willingness that in spite of how we have sinned, to forgive and to reconcile us, to bring us back into relationship with himself. In grace, Christ took upon himself all the punishment we deserve. Our grace was purchased for us on the cross of Christ. Augustine said that God's mercy goes before the unwilling to make him willing. It follows the willing to make his will effectual. In other words, when we turn to Christ and when we later continue to walk in Christ, all of this came about by grace. Martin Luther was once confronted about the doctrine of justification by grace. The man said, if this is true, a person could simply live as he pleased. Luther answered, indeed. Now, what pleases you? It's grace that caused my heart to be pleased with the will of God. And so the line in Hebrews 12:15 does sound strange. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See, according to Hebrews 12, things like bitterness and sexual immorality might cause us to miss the grace of God. But that sounds like that we're left to our own devices, trying to forgive our enemies and avoiding sins that entangle the soul. I mean, all of that sounds like what we do and not the grace of God. But here I think we miss the point. The grace of God is God's willingness to forgive, his willingness to reconcile us, his willingness to receive us after we've gone astray. The person who chooses to live in sin is the person who no longer seeks forgiveness, who doesn't look to be restored. He or she doesn't want to repent and see God. They're bitter or they're sexually immoral or in, in some way they're unwilling to give up their sins and seek grace. Today, as we look at the end of the story of Lot, we're left to consider the remarkable grace of God, the story of two people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and how they as a people failed to obtain the grace that God wonderfully offered them. Today, we're going to learn about these two nations, and I think there are some marvelous principles that we can learn about how God extends his grace to all of our lives. So let's start by reading Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. 
So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down and when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ammi. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, I've dealt with the actual situation surrounding this event in my last sermon, and, and today I want us to concentrate on a sinful act, God's offer of grace, and a tragic conclusion to the story. So let's start with a sinful act. I've been making the point that both Lot and his two daughters have been motivated by fear and an unwillingness to trust in God. Now, in the cave, fear overcomes Lot's two daughters, and they arrange an incestuous relationship with their father. Now, it's not desire or lust that drives them, but fear. They're afraid that they will never marry, and they're afraid that they're going to be left childless. And so, out of that fear, two nations come into being. The first is the Moabites and the second, the Ammonites. And because we know the history of these two people groups from our Bible, we might very easily jump to the wrong conclusion. See, the wrong conclusion is this. This is what happens when someone fails to trust in God, but acts out of the instinct of fear. See, I say that because we know that in later history, both the Moabites and the Ammonites will become the enemies of Israel. But if this is all that we get out of this account, I fear we're really getting the wrong idea. In order to understand this account rightly, we'll have to carefully research both Moab and Ammon and come to the conclusion that God gave these two nations a great deal of grace. And that's one of the most important lessons that we all need to learn. You may have sinned, and it may be that in consequence of your sin, your life is altered, and you'll have to live with that. So let's be clear. You're not outside of the reach of God's grace. If Romans 8.28 is true, and I'm completely convinced that it is, that God causes all things to work together for good, then even our sins and their consequences can work to our eternal long-term good. And so, don't lose heart, but trust fully in the grace of God. Well, let's see if we can trace something out of what the Bible tells us is the history of these two nations. Now, I'm going to jump ahead just a bit and take us to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Israel has come to the edge of the promised land, and Moses will soon die. But before God calls him home, Moses will stand at a place called the Plains of Moab. Now listen to what he says to Israel as he's recounting Israel's journey. I'm reading Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. Now, I'm going down to verse 19 of the same chapter. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now, think about that. First, would you notice that all throughout the First Testament, we're told that God gave Canaan as a possession to the people of Israel. In the same fashion, God had consigned a place for both Moab and Ammon. God led the people there. Indeed, there are some remarkable biblical parallels here. Just as Israel dispossessed the people of the Promised Land, 
So Moab and Ammon dispossessed the people living in their territory because of the sinfulness of that people group. And so in grace, God did not abandon either Moab or Ammon. He blessed them, he made them two nations, and he ensured that they would inherit a land that God had promised to them. And secondly, because of this, as Israel is journeying to the land God promised them, he forbids them from destroying those two nations. Israel is to live at peace with both Moab and Ammon. Again, we're reminded that what began in sin does not need to end in sin. And so if you were to take out a map of the Middle East and and find the nation of Jordan, which is to the east of Israel, you might be able to divide it into three sections going from south to north. And in the far south, you would find the territory of ancient Edom, and these are the descendants of Esau. Then in the middle of modern-day Jordan, you would find the ancient territory of Moab, and then again to the north of that, the territory of Ammon. Today, the capital of Jordan is the city of Ammon, which in biblical times was called Rabbah of the Ammonites. But as wonderful as the grace of God sounds still, in the history of the Moabites and the Ammonites, we find them resisting the grace of God, reacting in fear rather than in faith, and then becoming idolaters. So I'm now reading Numbers 22 verses 1 to 4. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that the Israelites had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Now think about that. God has told Israel not to harm the Moabites, and Moses is determined to obey God in this matter. But the Moabites watch Israel pass through their territory on the way to the Promised Land, and they're terrified by what they see. Now, some of us might respond by saying, well, perhaps the Moabites don't know that the Israelites meant them no harm. Perhaps they're only acting prudently by safeguarding their national interests and so forth. Well, perhaps. But remember also that Moab never asks Israel what they intend. They only fear the worst, and so they act badly. Truth In Life magazine. Now is the time to make sure you subscribe for our free bi-monthly magazine, Truth In Life. The next issue will be released in February, so by subscribing now, you'll ensure it will arrive on your doorstep. This next issue will discuss the distortion of love we find in our culture and the absence of a biblical understanding of love, love for God, love for others, and love in relationships. It also includes regular features for reading through the Bible in a year, updates on activities and events, and every issue features articles by Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, Isaac Dagno, and guest authors and pastors. February is culturally a time we celebrate love. Let's make sure we do it right. So to ensure you get your issue or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When we last left off, Moab was in a panic at the presence of Israel in their territory. And so they make a decision. I'm reading Numbers 22, verse 4, all the way to verse 7. 
So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hand. And from what follows is, of course, the attempt to curse Israel, an attempt that eventually will fail, followed by an attempt to seduce Israel into sexual immorality and thus incur the wrath of God. But more importantly, even though Israel does not wage war against either Moab or Ammon, still, animosity is not taken away. See, during the time of the judges, according to Judges 3, 12 to 30, Eglon, the king of Moab, invaded Israel and oppressed them for a period of 18 years. Ehud, an Israelite from Benjamin, eventually assassinated him. And then on to Judges 10, it records the Ammonites oppressing Israel. Just before the reign of King Saul, a king by the name of Nahash, who was then besieging the Israelite city of Jabesh-Gilead, and at that time, the Ammonites demanded that every male in Jabesh-Gilead have their right eye gouged out. And Saul, of course, utterly defeated them and rescued Jabesh-Gilead. And then later, in 2 Samuel 8, verse 2, we read that David finally subdued Moab and set apart many Moabites unto death. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're told that David also defeated the Ammonites. And Bible readers will remember that well, for it's while fighting against their capital at Rabbah that David committed his sin against Bathsheba and her husband. But that only increased the animosity. When some 400 years after David, God was raising up the Babylonians to punish Judah, the Moabites and the Ammonites, along with the Edomites, were standing on the sidelines and cheering for Babylon. And they already were making their own plans to carve up whatever remained of Judah. Finally, their enemy was going to be forever vanquished. You know, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel had very specific words to say at this time. I'm reading Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 1 to 4. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, Therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession, and they will set their encampments among you and make their dwelling in your midst. They shall eat your fruit, and they shall drink your milk. And then later in verse 7, and I'm reading, And I will cut you off from the peoples and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And then later in verse 8 of the same chapter, Ezekiel also has a word for Moab. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities. And then on to verse 10, I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession, that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. 
And so exactly as Ezekiel prophesied it would happen, very shortly after the destruction of Judah, the Babylonians turned their sights on those three nations, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. At first, they were welcomed as allies of Babylon, but soon Babylon also destroyed them just as they had done to Judah. And so Ammon and Edom ceased to be nations at that time. But after 70 years, Israel returned to the promised land, but but Ammon and Moab did not. And so we might end this simply by saying, well, this is the consequence of refusing the grace of God, of simply refusing to acknowledge his grace and instead fighting against his plan. But interestingly enough, the prophet Jeremiah has something to say about the future of those two nations. I'm reading from Jeremiah 48. The entire chapter is a prophecy against Moab. It was written during the same time period as Ezekiel wrote, and it contains some of the same prophecies against Moab that Ezekiel spoke of. But here in Jeremiah is something unique, and I'm reading verses 46 and 47. Woe to you, O Moab! The people of Chemosh are undone. For your sons have been taken captive, and your daughters into captivity. Yet... I will restore the fortunes of Moab in latter days, declares the Lord. And something very similar is said about Ammon. While terror will fall on them, Jeremiah 49 verse 6 says, But afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Well, we wonder when exactly might this happen. And indeed, we simply don't know. I mean, there are those who argue that the existence of the modern-day nation of Jordan is a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And I don't know. It might be a bit of a stretch, but, but nonetheless, I simply put it out there so that you might understand that God, in spite of their sins, offers those two nations yet another encounter with grace. But it seems that even though God gives a temporary respite to both Moab and Ammon, in the end, they're utterly destroyed. Listen to what Zephaniah the prophet says of their ultimate end. And here I'm reading Zephaniah 2 verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. And so it seems to me that these two nations, born out of the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah, are destined to return to the very ruins out of which they were born. Now, at this point, you might be saying to yourself, well, it seems that the entire story of the daughters of Lot, acting out of fear and in complete rejection of the promises of God, that, that eventually this entire story ends in utter defeat. Grace was offered, grace was received, and yet in the end, grace was utterly rejected. The sad history of the two boys, Moab and Ammon, will end in complete judgment and wrath and rejection and punishment for sins never to be forgiven. And yeah, that, that is part of the story. But there is more to this story. Now, I want you to remember something that happened all the way back in the time of the judges. An Israelite woman named Naomi, a woman who suffered the death of her husband and the death of her two sons in the land of Moab, is coming back to Bethlehem, which was her hometown. And along with her is a Moabite woman, Elizabeth's daughter-in-law, the woman that had married one of her now deceased sons. This Moabite woman will not leave Naomi's side. She tells her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people 
And then breathtakingly, she adds, and your God, that is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel will be my God. And with that, this woman named Ruth, that Moabite woman who has an entire book of the Bible named after her, moves to Bethlehem, marries an Israelite war hero, and has a son with him. And in the course of time, Ruth, the Moabite woman, will become the great-grandmother of King David, Israel's greatest king. And furthermore, Ruth, the Moabite woman, will stand in the family line of none other than Jesus himself, king of kings and lord of lords and savior of the world and the hope of everything Abraham was looking forward to. It tells me about grace. God was never done with Moab and Ammon. And that tells me an amazing biblical picture of a God who does not just throw people away, but redeems men and women from every race and tongue and people and tribe, a people made for himself. And here's my application. You might say, how can I ever amount to anything? You know, I've sinned. I come from a family and from a people who are all sinners. My father and mother never amounted to much. And all my people, at least the ones that I know, they've all failed. And to that, I hear the marvelous voice of a Moabite woman from a people who were forbidden from entering into the priesthood of Israel and from entering into the sanctuary of God's people. Ruth the Moabite woman is one of the great heroes of the faith, and she stands among the people of God. And why is she like that? She submitted to the grace of God, and so can you. Sodom and Gomorrah need not mark any human being. Grace! Grace can be our heritage. John, in Hebrews 12, 15, and you mentioned that early in the message, it says, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do we have a responsibility as brothers and sisters for our brother and sister respecting grace? Yeah, we sure do. Um, You know, it's so easy for us to watch someone falling into either bitterness, sexual immorality, those kind of things in which we fail to obtain the grace of God, and and then to say nothing. And so it is important for believers to constantly be uh, loving one another enough so that we will help each other avoid the sins that entangle our souls. So uh, I think that's an excellent question, Ben, and I, I would encourage us, you know, especially as we thought about the Moabites and the Ammonites and all the grace that was given and yet them falling from grace, that it is given as a warning to us, and so uh, we should take that warning quite seriously. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. One ministry we celebrate during our 60th anniversary is Laugh Again with Phil Calloway. It's a unique ministry that connects people to a God of hope and joy. What difference does your support of Laugh Again make in people's lives? Listen to this. Each morning, my children and I tune in. It makes us laugh. It sometimes makes me cry. It always helps us look to Jesus. Since we began listening, we've been through some very hard times as a couple. You speak a message of joy, profound and biblical, without being stuffy. It helps us more than you could ever know. Phil doesn't dodge the sometimes harsh realities of life, but in the midst of them shows how applicable the scriptures are. And I listen daily for the laughs, the reminders of God's love and care. Please remember Laugh Again with your support. Your gifts make this important ministry possible. 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.